15 through 17. So when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. If you will, keep your place at that passage. That's where we're going to be parking for our study this morning. I'm glad you're here. We appreciate the presence of every one of you. If you're old enough to remember the 70s, by that I mean the 1970s, if you remember the 1870s, I'm going to be standing at the door. I really want to meet you. But if you remember the 70s, you may remember a television show called the Smothers Brothers. And you may remember that the whole purpose of their show was that they had a comedy-slash-musical act. And as I recall, Dick was the straight man in that team, and Tommy was, well, he was the doofus. Uh, but Tommy was always, any, anything that Dick would say that Tommy didn't like, his rejoinder was, Mom always loved you best. And, and you can't help but think of those kinds of silly conversations or acts when you think about the passage that we're looking at in John chapter 21 this morning, William Glasser, who has written a book entitled Reality Therapy, the premise of which, he says, is that every human being ever that occupied this planet has two basic needs in common. They are to love and be loved and to feel worthwhile to oneself and to others. But we're not only interested in do people love me, do they accept me, do I please these people, especially those in our immediate families and our, our frames of reference? But sometimes, like in this conversation, we want to know, do they love me more than anybody else loves me? And that's kind of what was taking place here. This is a memorable question that was posed by Jesus to Simon Peter. And I hope that we appreciate this morning how tremendously important this is. Because even though 1,900 years has passed since these words were spoken, this inquiry that was being made here in this conversation is still very searching and very practical. In fact, if we want to do spiritual inventory of our own lives, we would do well to be asking ourselves the same question. How much do we love the Lord? Do we love him more than anybody else loves him? Now, remember Simon Peter, who had three times denied the Lord, is now three times asked by the Lord to indicate a proclamation, a declaration of his love for the Lord. I don't think that's coincidental or accidental to you. Three times he denied him, and now three times the question is being asked, but do you love me more than these? Now, Peter had, in the context of this discussion, at least in Matthew's account, had professed a more affectionate attachment to the Lord than had the other apostles. So Jesus' death is imminent. He's trying to prepare these men, his close followers, for the fact that he's going to be leaving this planet and that he's going to be leaving the work of the kingdom up to them. And he was warning his disciples that they were going to be scattered as, as sheep without a shepherd, that you're not going to have the kind of leadership that you've had for the last three and a half years. And it was Peter who exclaimed, at least in Mark's account, chapter 14, verse 29, although all 
all shall be offended, yet will not I. Now notice that. He's not just saying, you're not going to have a problem with me. My faith will never waver. Uh, my, my confidence in you will never be broken. But he is saying, even though all present company included will be offended, I'm not one of them. And so then Jesus here asks the penetrating question, do you love me more than these? Moffat's translation makes that even clearer. He transla translates it like this, do you love me more than the others do? I think that's interesting that he would ask that question and not only ask it of Peter, but he would ask it of Peter while he's standing there with the other apostles. So you've just claimed that you love me, that you'll never deny me, and everybody else in the world may be offended of me, but you're not one of those. Do you really love me more than these guys do? It's what Jesus was asking. You know, a genuine Christian is someone who's not just a baptized man or a woman. He isn't a person who just goes as a matter of habit or convenience to worship the Lord on the Lord's day and then he's going to live the rest of his life as if he had no spiritual commitment. That's not how the Bible defines a disciple at all. A real Christian is one who has the religion of Jesus Christ in his heart and, and it permeates his whole life. That is, it is something that is his magnificent obsession. It is a driving force for him or her. It's not just experienced by the person in his heart. It's seen by others in his daily life. It's seen by others Monday through Saturday by the way they live, by the way they make their choices, by the kind of moral standards they live by. It is then a matter of both emotion of the heart, but also devotion demonstrated by life. Now, Peter didn't get all that. And that's why I'm convinced, at least in part, Jesus was asking him these questions. A true Christian is someone who loves the Lord preeminently. The last verse of the book of Ephesians, you may remember Ephesians 6, 24, reads like this. As Paul is signing off on his letter to the Ephesian congregation, he says, Grace be with all of them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. That love is to be the driving force. And that person thus described loves the Lord for all that Christ has done for him or her and because of all that Christ is doing for us right now. You know, the Bible clearly teaches that love is to be the mainspring of all of our service to Christ. And if our service isn't motivated by that supreme incentive, then it's not going to long endure. A love that is shallow is not going to motivate us and keep us faithful to the Lord for the rest of our lives. And that's why Paul ended 1 Corinthians 13 with those now famous words, sometimes even uttered in our marriage ceremonies. He says, faith, there and now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The true Christian then is going to try to keep all the will of God out of a love for God that is the very center of his life. If I've understood this book, that is the essence of it. So here's the question that I want to pose for application for just a few minutes with you this morning. Does that mean that we really love the Lord? If Peter were, or if the Lord were asking us the question that he asked Peter that day, how would we respond? Do you really love me more than everybody else in this auditorium? How deep is your love, as the Bee Gees would say it lyrically? How deep is the love that you have for the Lord? Is it enough to carry you through the end of this day? Is it enough to carry you through the end of the week? Is it enough to get you through the end of this life? If, if, if the Lord delays his return, the Bible indicates there's some characteristics, some yardsticks that we can use in measuring the depth 
of our love for the Lord. I want to mention just a few. Number one, if we really love the Lord, we'll want to obey him. I know that because the Bible tells me so. In John 14, 15, Jesus told his disciples then and to us today, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's one way in a tangible, overt sort of way you can measure a person's love. If I love the Lord, then I'm going to obey him. If we love a person, we want to please that person. You may not know all there is to know about love even from greeting cards, but you still know that. We don't just say, I, don't, I couldn't care less what he or she wants. No, if we really love someone, then we're going to want to do what would please that person. On the other hand, we try to avoid doing those things that we know that would hurt or displease that person. And so it is with the true Christian and Jesus Christ. You show that person anything that Christ delights in, and that person is going to follow after it. They're, they're, they're determined, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my days. Or you show that person anything in his daily practice that displeases the Lord, and that person says, I'll give it up. I will abandon that. I, I know now that that's not what the Lord wants me to be doing. That's, if I understand it correctly, what the Bible says that a child of God ought to be doing with his or her life. If it, if it pleases the Lord, I want to do it. If it displeases the Lord, I want to give it up. Here's a second criterion by which we can evaluate how deep we love the Lord. We'll always want to be in his presence. That is, there's a relationship going on here. It's not just what we know about the Lord. It's just, it isn't just the facts that we can put down on a piece of paper drawn from Scripture that we can memorize and say, I really know the Lord because I have all this information. I've looked at Wikipedia or whatever, and I know everything there is to know about him. No, it's more than just head knowledge. It's a relationship that we're talking about here. And we know that that's true of any relationship. Because when we really love a person, we'll be, want to be in that person's company. We enjoy association with that person. And we even hate to think of having to say goodbye for a short period of time. And so it is with a true Christian in Christ. You may remember in Matthew 18, 20, it's where the Lord himself said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. That means when we assemble here as a church, God has said in a very special way, I am here with you in presence. And the devoted Christian looks forward to the coming of each Lord's Day so that we can assemble with his spiritual family and we can commemorate the Lord's sacrifice as we've done already this morning and we can edify and be edified by our sincere worship to a God that we say we love. Now, it's easy to say that, but do we demonstrate it not just by making sure that we are here to worship him, but also in how we live once we leave this building? Now, you know, and every preacher reminds you from time to time, if you have forgotten, that Hebrews 10.25 is still in the Bible. And the passage, if you have forgotten, says, not forsaking, the Hebrews writer is writing to first century disciples and said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting or encouraging one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Apparently, it was already a problem in the first century church. Those who professed to be believers were beginning to neglect the assembling for the purpose of worship of the saints together. And, and the writer is calling on them to reevaluate their relationship and their commitment to God, if that was, was the case. And it was directed to those Hebrew Christians who love for Christ had grown weak and the candle of their, of their love for the Lord was about to flicker and go out. And the neglect of the common assembly was just one of the symptoms of their apostasy. Now, I, I want to make sure that you know that. 
He isn't just saying, here's something that needs to be corrected. You've been forsaking the assembling of the saints together for the purpose of worship. But back, if, if you'll back up to chapter 3, verse 12, and also chapter 4, verse 1, he gives them some other signs of the fact that their faith is growing weaker by the day rather than stronger. And I'm just saying that the same can well be true of us today. When members deliberately neglect the worship assembly, the very first thing they need to examine is not the church and say, what's wrong with the church? They don't need to examine the worship schedule and say, why isn't it keeping my interest and why isn't it more scintillating? What they need to do is to examine first their own hearts because that's what the Hebrews writer said. If our, if our love for the Lord is growing weak, then the first thing that I need to examine is the inside of myself. I need to examine my motivations and how strong is my love and my commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. I never forget hearing years ago, it's been decades now, of hearing Batchel Barrett Baxter tell the story of one of the very first places that he preached in West Texas. And he said there was a fellow that was a part of the congregation that worked in uh, and I've told you this story before, but it's still, I think, germane to this subject. He, he talked about this fellow who worked in the messiest side of the oil business that you could imagine. I mean, actually working on and doing all those mechanical things that they do with the oil drilling rigs. And he said it was one of the kind of jobs, you know, when you come home, you don't just change clothes. You change the oil in your clothes. You know what I'm talking about. And it was that guy, a blue-collar worker, who was asked to lead the opening prayer one Sunday morning at the local congregation. What he prayed was this. Lord, we've been looking forward to this hour all week. That says volumes, doesn't it? That's the man God wants. That's the worshiper the Lord is seeking. Those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. At least that's what he said in John chapter 4. Because his love for the Lord was, was apparent. Lord, we've been looking forward to this day all week. I, I, I'm not going to neglect. I've been anticipating this. I, I want to come with God's people and to express my deep appreciation for all that he's done, all he's doing now, and all he's promised to do for us in the future. In fact, the true Christian actually longs for, with great anticipation, the day when we will see the master face to face and be at home with the Lord forever. Here's a third criterion. We'll want to converse with him. We love to talk with those whom we love. In fact, if you don't believe that, just walk through the stores or look at people who are in the cars around you and see how many of them are on their phones this day. We like to talk. We like to stay in touch with people who mean something to us. And sometimes people call me who don't mean anything to me. And we call those robocalls. You know, the ones that you wait three seconds and then they say something. But if we really love someone, if we really have deep affection for someone, we'll want to talk with them, and we have no difficulty finding a subject of conversation with a much-loved friend. And in a similar way, the Bible teaches us that the Christian finds it a very natural thing to, as we sometimes sing, to take it to the Lord in prayer. To spend time in conversation with the Heavenly Father to make sure that we're staying in, in touch with the headquarters so that I don't misunderstand what it is that God wants me to do in my life. Here's what Paul calls it in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He calls it praying without ceasing. And that doesn't mean that we go around praying all the time, you know, with head bowed, hands folded. But he's saying don't let, ever let there be a time in your life when you're not a praying child of God. Prayer needs to be a consistent, regular part of your spiritual life if you intend to grow the way God would have you to grow. 
And I wonder sometimes, how often do we really pray? And, and that's not an indictment of this good congregation. It's also a question that I have to ask myself. I mean, it's easy to say our prayers, isn't it? If we just had a little, like we sometimes use the Lord's Prayer in that way, just a little model prayer that takes about 8 to 12 minutes to, or 12 seconds to say and to recite without really thinking about what we're saying. And we can say our prayer, prayers, we can even, well, sometimes we can even mouth our pious platitudes. But do we really communicate our love and our needs and even our, our, our great heartaches to a God who loves us, who cares about us, and who can do something about the circumstances of our lives. I think often of Jesus' statement over in Matthew chapter 15, 8 through 9. You may remember those, those scribes and Pharisees that the Lord said that they are honoring me with their lips. But then the next thing he said was, but their, but their hearts are far from me. They were saying the right things. They were praying the right prayers. They were using the right vocabulary in their, their prayers. And sometimes in light of Matthew chapter 6, they were even doing it in a public way so that everybody could see the fact that they were praying people. But he said, doesn't matter if your heart is far from me. What was he saying? He was saying, do you love me more than these? How deep is your love? How deep is your commitment to the Lord and to his cause. You know, I don't have to have the oratorical ability of a Demosthenes to pray. But the Bible says one thing I do need is to have a humble and a sincere heart. And that's really all, he, all that God wants when we pray. And also bear in mind, if you will, that God speaks to us through his word. So let's make sure that when we pray, we're not just wanting to be heard, but that we're also willing to hear. That is, to spend time listening to God to be receptive as well as communicative in our spiritual lives. Criteria number four is that we'll be glad to bring him gifts and offerings. You may remember back in Matthew chapter 7, specifically verse 11, the wise men at Jesus' birth, they brought gifts and offerings to him because that was a very natural response. Sometimes even when somebody invites us over, we bring you know a little gift, a little housewarming sort of gift that we might bring in our hands to that person as somewhat of an acknowledgement of their kindness and their hospitality. So let me ask you this question in regards to our own relationships. Why does a young man bring gifts, flowers, candy, or whatever it is that he has deemed that she really places some value in? Why does he do that with his girlfriend? And maybe there are times, although I wish, folks, this is my personal opinion, that there were more holidays like that where she would bring gifts to him. Have you noticed how slanted we are in our national holidays and how much time we spend on Valentine's Day making sure that that special woman is pleased? What about that special guy? You know, I'm just saying. I'm lobbying. <laughs> and yes, if nominated, I would run for office. But, but that's the way it is with our human relationships. We, we, we want to say, here's how much I love you. And we'll actually bring a tangible token. It might be a ring. It might be something else. You may remember in the original uh, marriage enrichment films, Faulkner and Burkeen, that Carl Burkeen said that one of the things that he would like to do when he would, we was on the road, and, which was a lot of, of about half the year that he, they would spend doing those seminars, and when he'd come home, he would always bring his wife a Snickers bar because she loved Snickers bars. 
And he would use that sometimes as an illustration in saying, you know, it, all it does is just show to your wife while you're away and when you're coming home that I was thinking of you. And that's the kind of thing that, that wives really appreciate. And he said that wherever he would use that illustration, in that town, Snicker bars would sell out. I mean, you know, all the stores would go, I like a Snickers. I'm sorry, they're all gone. He said, no, guys, you're missing the point. You've got to figure out what it is your wife likes, not what my wife likes. It's Snicker bars. I know that. But you've got to figure out what it is that your girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, or husband likes. And, and, and that's a gift that you bring to them that, that communicates, I've been thinking about you, and I want you to know how precious and appreciated you are. I'm just saying that Hallmark Corporation isn't the only group of people that knows that we love to, to give gifts to those we love. And at Christmas time, we, we get to a certain age and we realize that it's much more enjoyable to give than it is to receive. The Bible tells us plainly what kind of giver the Lord loves. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that's the Bible for it. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, he says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And not only that, he is pleased with one who is giving according to what he has prospered. That's 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, uh, for that side of it. Now, there's some who would be able to, when the collection plate comes by, to give a dollar and to give that cheerfully because that doesn't represent very much at all. I mean, all of us could be quite cheerful if we just gave a dollar. But it wouldn't be acceptable because it is not proportionate to his prosperity in light of 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. There's some who couldn't give $100 for the exact same reasons. He might be able to give it cheerfully, but it still would, be not, uh, would not be representative of that according to what he's prospered. But the cheerful giver, and this is the point I really want us to appreciate in light of this lesson, gives what he or she gives because they really love the Lord. They really love the Lord, and they delight in giving to his cause, knowing that there are going to be people who will be helped, there are going to be people who will be touched with the gospel who would not be able to do that if it were not for our free will offering. The grudging giver isn't acceptable. The Bible says because his motivation, his heart, is all wrong. Number five, and quickly, we'll, we'll be willing to sacrifice for his cause. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, beginning, that we are, as, as God's people, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Remember that passage? A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which he says is your reasonable service. It's interesting to note that the word reasonable as it is presented in the King James Version, at least, means belonging to reason or a rational service. That is, it's not something that you do mindlessly. It is something that has been contemplated, deliberated on, prayed about, and then we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. You may remember that under the law of Moses, under the old dispensations, it was very easy for someone to, to render an irrational service. And by that I mean that they could go to the right place, they could offer the right sacrifice, but without one's will and one's heart ever being consulted, that is, they could just go through the motions and do all of those things and make sure that the sacrifice was offered at the right time, at the right place, without ever really thinking about what this means in terms of motivation and where is my heart when I'm doing this. And it was clear that even under those dispensations, God was not pleased with that kind of sacrifice. You may know already that Matthew twenty two thirty seven love the Lord 
the response of Jesus to the young lawyer, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's not the first place that appeared in the New Testament. It's found in the Old Testament as well. God has always wanted our hearts first. He wants ourselves when we give our gifts and offerings. And then Paul also in Romans 12 tells us that under the law of Christ, we're to offer ourselves as that kind of, of, of rational sacrifice. Give your whole life. It isn't just what you put in the, in the collection plate when it passes. You know, I love 2 Corinthians 8.12 because of its fairness and its practicality when it comes to giving. And here's what Paul said. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. All Paul is communicating in that passage is the Lord is very reasonable and fair when it comes to our free will giving. He does not expect us to give something that we do not have. Did you miss that? He, he, he is going to regulate and determine whether or not he's going to judge our giving according to what we have and not according to what we don't have or what we just wish we had. So he's very fair and just about that. Number six, we'll be willing to forego and abandon anything that will bring reflection upon the name of Christ. I'm just saying that if that same question were asked of us this morning, that Jesus asked of Peter, do you love me more than these? That would be a part of the question. That is, are you willing to forego, if, are you willing to give up anything that you know will bring any kind of shame, reproach, or heartache to the name of Christ? I think that's something that every child of God needs to ask himself or herself on a, on a daily basis, don't you? It might change our conduct, especially when we're out in public and around others. It might change the way we react when somebody cuts us off in traffic on Atlanta Highway. It might uh, change the way we react when we don't get our way at the return refund desk at the local Target or whatever store we might be in. It, it's, going to, it's going to inform and regulate and govern everything that we do 24-7 in our lives because that's what a Christian is. And if our love for the Lord is what, as Peter is called upon to profess, if it really is what we say it is, that even though all of these people may abandon you and desert you and fall away and be offended of you and be scattered like sheep without a shepherd, it's not going to happen to me. Well, Jesus is telling Peter, and please excuse the vernacular here, put up or shut up. Show me how much you love me. Demonstrate it in the way that you make the decisions from now on. You may remember in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 and 32, the Lord said, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or the church of God. Give no offense there. I remind you that offense here doesn't mean just to hurt someone's feelings. And that's kind of the way that we have allowed that word to be used in the fellowship of God's people. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about to actually cause one to spiritually stumble, to cause some, someone to lose their soul because of something they've seen you do. By the way, that includes advertising for the opposition. Let's not bring shame and reproach upon the name of Christ by advertising for the opposition. Here's what I mean by that. I remember 35 years ago reading a bulletin article about a man who was visiting another congregation, and he said, and I'm not making this up, he said, one of the men that was at the Lord's Supper table that morning serving the Lord's Supper to the congregation had a beer t-shirt on. You don't advertise for the opposition. And I don't mean just when you're at the table serving the Lord's Supper. I mean in any circumstance of life, you know who you are. 
You know whose you are. You know what you ought to be standing for, and you're going to be advertising that. By contrast, I think I told you a week or two ago about another young man in an Oklahoma City that was waiting on the table, and on the front of his shirt, you remember that from two weeks ago, I hope, it said, uh, I'm a fool for Christ, and on the back it said, whose fool are you? Now, that's the kind of message that we need to be bringing to the world and not Bud Light or whatever. Seventhly, we'll love all the Lord's disciples. Here's what John said about that in 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes, by the way, that's, that's a linear verb. It is ongoing in action. Whoever continues to believe, literally, that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, watch this carefully, also loves them that are born of him. That is, those who claim to love the head of the family have to also love the family. First John 4, 20, 21, he said, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You, know, you can't get any clearer than that. You might submit that to a committee and they'd mess it up. But the way John wrote it, it is quite clear. Those who say that they love the Lord but they can't tolerate the brethren, they are fooling no one. Love here, incidentally, means to seek another's highest good or welfare. And then finally, I want to end by just an overall view of the occasion of this text because you may have forgotten what, what all of this is about. On the evening of the Lord's betrayal, Jesus told the apostles that he would that night be, uh, be, uh, would be led to trial and then to crucifixion and they would be offended because of him that's Matthew 26 and verse 31 if you want to check it out Peter then promised the Lord that although all might be offended I will never deny you that's verses 33 and 35 of the same chapter Matthew 26 Jesus then predicted that Peter would deny him three times he said you're going to you claim that you'll never deny me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows the next morning, verse 34. And then Peter's denial of the Lord occurred, as you well know, just as Jesus had predicted. Now, it's after the Lord's resurrection from the dead that Jesus calls upon Peter to profess, to express his love for him in the text that we're looking at this morning in John chapter 21. A footnote in the ASV reads like this. Love in these places represents two different Greek words. So bear that in mind. In this conversation, there are, being, there are two different Greek words that are being employed when Jesus is asking Peter these questions. What are they? Well, first, there's agape love, which I remind you means a love that rises out of deep devotion. It is when one seeks the highest good of another is prompted by devotion. And then the second Greek word is phileo, which means to befriend, to like, to experience joy in the presence of as prompted by emotion. Now, in Jesus' first two questions posed to Peter, he used the stronger term for love. He said, Peter, do you agape me? He asked that in question one. He asked this, that using the same word in question number two. And Peter's reply each time was the weaker term, phileo. Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. It's basically saying, Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, you know I like you. Like many men... He doesn't get it. When we're talking about the love language, Peter is not clued in. But the third time Jesus asked the question, he came down on Peter's level and he asked using the word phileo, Peter, do you like me? And the Bible says in verse 17 that Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he replied, Lord, you know all things. You know that I 
phileo you. Now watch this very closely. We're almost through. The child of God who lets a headache or a hangnail interfere with their service to the Lord has a problem. And what is it? It's essentially this. It's phileo love instead of agape love. He likes the Lord, but he doesn't really love the Lord. That is to the highest ultimate degree. He may feel warmly affectionate toward the Lord, but when the rubber hits the road, he will not do what is necessary to demonstrate that love in tangible action. Just the way Peter failed to live up to his commitment to the Lord, Lord, I will never deny you. The same is true of the man who allows some offense, either real or imagined, that may come from another brother in Christ. Keep him from serving the Lord. What's his primary problem? Well, it's, it's like instead of love. If, if at least I have understood what John 21 is all about. So the question of this hour that I want to pose to you, is that fundamental? Do you really, really love the Lord? And I don't mean do you like the Lord. I don't mean are you a fan. I don't mean do you get the warm fuzzies when we sing songs about Jesus. I mean do you love the Lord in the highest ultimate sense of you are willing to commit your life, your decisions, everything, center and circumference of your life to the Lord on a daily basis. You and I know that there are some in the world who, who feel an affection for him prompted by emotion that must be sustained even by greater emotion. They're on fire for the Lord occasionally, maybe after a revival, maybe after a particularly rousing sermon, but that feeling, that emotion soon dies because that's what emotions do. Why? Because it's phileo instead of agape, and he will forevermore be a fair-weather friend. He will be a sunshine patriot in the army of our Lord. I'm, I'm just saying that we desperately need people in the 21st century church who love the Lord and who will serve him and will commit themselves to that whether it is convenient or not. And we need people who will love the Lord with agape love and not just phileo love because phileo love prompted by emotion will vacillate, but agape love prompted by action is here to stay. It was the disciple whom Jesus loved who wrote these words in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. We are willing to profess our love as Peter was, but are we willing to practice it on a day-to-day -day basis. I'll remind you one more time the verse that we started this discussion with, John 14, 15. Jesus said, here's the way you really show that you love me. It is by doing what I say. And I wonder this morning, have you done that? Are you willing to begin doing that this very day as you commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? And through your faith, your confession of belief in him as God's son and being immersed in water where you contact his redeeming blood, you can be a part of God's people starting today while we stand and while we sing to encourage.